0: Transit has been the site of conflict and struggle in a lot of different places, so places from Santiago to New York to Hong Kong to Paris. And in some of the cases, um, people, protesters are using transit networks as a platform for protest.
1: Welcome to City Road, I'm Sophie Weber. Today we're talking to Dr. Teresa Enright,
0: I'm Teresa Enright, and I'm an assistant
1: professor from the University of Toronto. About her research on public transit activism and using public transport as a means for activism. Could you tell us a little bit about these protests and what they're hoping to achieve?
0: Yeah, well, I think it really depends on where you're looking. So transit has been the site of conflict and struggle in a lot of different places, so places from Santiago to New York to Hong Kong to Paris. Um, In Hong Kong, for example, the struggle is not about transit as such, but transit networks provide an easy way to mobilize people, literally mobilize people. Um, And so then you see the transit network becoming a kind of key site of conflict between protesters and the government. In other places, the conflicts are actually about transit as such. And so Santiago is a really good example of this. Um, the protests that began last October uh, began in response to uh, a fare hike in the metro system. And so protesters were initially responding to that particular change, right? They were protesting the fare hike. They wanted transit to be more affordable. They wanted to be able to get to school or to work or wherever they were going um, without having to kind of pay more money. But those transit uh, protests initially became much something much broader, right, and they became what sparked um, as being about transit became about uh, neoliberal development, it became about Chile's model of, um, of rule and about how they're providing public services or not, and it became about these much broader questions. New York, again, you have kind of a little bit of a different story again. um, There's been a lot of rallies and mass fare evasions in New York City over the past few months, and those have been about uh, affordability on transit as well, but they also have been in response to the securitization of transit space and the surveillance on transit space, um, which particularly affects racialized New Yorkers.
1: So transit becomes this kind of lightning rod for a bunch of different claims and a bunch of different conflicts. So what are the demands of these different protest groups? What do they want and what is their vision for a kind of good life in the city? Yeah, again, it, it kind of varies case by
0: case. So uh, in the, the activists that I was looking at in New York City, what they want um, is the ability to move, the ability to move freely, to not be subject to um, undue state violence or state surveillance. And again, in that case, at least the activists that I was looking at were really those who were organizing on an anti-racist platform. And so they were talking about the way that racism gets kind of channeled through transit spaces and the way that restrictions on movement affect black and brown individuals um, more than the general population. So there, the claim is, of course, for, for greater access to be able to move, to be able to get to work, um, to be able to do so uh, in an affordable, kind of universally accessible way, but also, um, pr- more broadly, the, f- the freedom, emancipation um, from, from state violence, from state restrictions on um, your ability to to kind of
1: do what you want to do in the city. Why is transport such an important infrastructure when thinking about justice and equality in cities? Yeah.
0: Um, again, I think that's a few different levels that you could understand the role of transit and it's important to, to social justice. Um, at a most immediate level, it's just something that millions of people rely on every day and use every day. Um, so it becomes a necessity of everyday life, a necessity of survival. Um, again, the ability to get to work, the ability to get to medical services, to get to school, to get to daycare, um, to, get where, to get to recreation, right? Um, wherever it is that you need to go, um, not everybody uses transit, but lots of people do. Millions of people in cities around the world rely on transit networks to just get about their daily lives. And so it's a really immediate thing, and it's a thing that lots of people share. It's also, I mean, in terms of the ability of transit to be an infrastructure for mobilizing people, lots of people use transit. And so there's already this kind of collective um, character to it, right? You're there. It's where people are. It's where they gather. It's where you interact with others, right? Strangers, people you might not otherwise have a chance to meet or have any occasion to meet. So it becomes a way of just literally bringing people together in the same public space. Now, on a slightly kind of maybe broader level, transit's also really important for urban development, right? It kind of um, sets the map for where cities are going to grow, um, for how they're going to grow, for what the priorities uh, of the, the region are that need to be connected and why. And so it becomes becomes a, a kind of lever for urban development more generally, um, it can become uh, an anchor for global investment and the kind of flows of global capital, um, if you want to think in those terms. And so it becomes uh, also really important to kind of cities and how they're changing, how they're transforming writ large.
1: In your research, Teresa, you link together public transport and commons and practices of commoning. So why are these ideas so important or interesting for thinking about public transport?
0: Well, this is something that I've, I've been trying to think through recently. So I, I really appreciate the question. and I don't think I have all the answers yet. Um, but the idea of the commons, I think, is really useful to think about those resources that are used collectively, that are governed collectively, um, and that exist for the common benefit of all. And if we think about mobility as a commons, I think it gives us a different perspective on kind of how how we should build transit networks, what the purpose of them is, um, who should be able to access them, who should be able to benefit from all the things that they enable. Um, and I think the commons, as opposed to something like the public, which is kind of the typical way we think about transit, right, public transit, it's almost equivalent to mass transit. I think the commons allows us to see that maybe we can have a way of owning and organizing and making decisions about mobility that actually, we, where we don't have to rely on the state to be um, the kind of final say, or the guarantor of interest, or um, the, the experts, uh, where we can think about mobility as belonging
1: to the people who use it and the people who move. You made a distinction between a common resource as a a kind of thing, like water or trees or air, um, and commoning as a practice. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how it matters for transit?
0: Yeah. So a lot of people who talk about commons talk about it as a thing that kind of exists out in the world, um, a forest or something. But I think uh, an important distinction that we could also make is that those those things that exist in the world, like a forest, it's never a common resource unless there's people who use it and who um, make rules for how it should be used. And so in that sense, there's this real activity that's involved in, in bringing about a commons and instituting a commons and making it last and making it durable and making it function. And so by commoning, uh, I refer to those activities, right? Those activities of um, cooperation, those activities of co-decision making, and those activities of regulation more broadly that uh, determine and that govern how those things are going to be used. And I think that allows us to understand um, on the ground, kind of what people are actually doing, right? And then what is necessary to be done in order to make things that are a little more collective than they currently are.
1: Teresa's been working on four case studies. Hong Kong, Santiago, and most especially New York City and Toronto in Canada.
0: No one should go to jail for 275. Good morning, real New Yorkers swiping forward. We're swiping New Yorkers in for free today. So the the Swipe It Forward campaign is is, um, one that I mentioned in New York. Um, And essentially what the campaign does is it swipes in people who wouldn't otherwise be able to get into the transit system, right? Into the
1: MTA system.
0: Um, What this is helping to do is uh, to alleviate Uh, the pressure of rising fares from the MTA, and it also uh, directly combats uh, broken windows policing. Um, It's illegal to ask for a swipe. It's illegal to solicit and to stand in front of the turnstiles and block people from entering, um, hoping that they'll give you a swipe. But it's not illegal for people to swipe in as they exit the system. If they have an unlimited card, you can swipe people in as long as nobody's asking for it. <laughs> um, and so the swipe it forward campaigns, um, which have this, this motto, if you, if you see someone, help someone or something to that effect, I may have the word slightly wrong, um, is essentially uh, a way to provide these kind of systems of mutual aid, right? To help people who couldn't otherwise get into the system to go to school, right? These are very Again, the kind of daily needs of survival, um, and to to allow them to do that, and to make sure that if they do that, and this is where the the kind of black self defense um, comes in, to make sure that they're um, that they can get onto the system legally, so that they're not subject to um, police violence or to criminal charges, right? Because if you're charged with fair beating um, for fair evasion, um, that's a criminal charge in New York, which means that you could, you know, face fines, you could face a night in jail, you get a criminal record, um, or you could have a violent interaction, right, with the police officers. All right, let's go. Poverty is not a crime. We will not be preyed upon. We are not animals. If we are poor, that is not something that we should be criminalized for. That campaign, in that sense, yeah, it's, it's about equity, it's about access, but it's also about protecting the dignity and the um, the ability of black and brown New Yorkers to survive, right? And so it becomes this uh, real movement of solidarity, um, of, of helping each other out of reciprocity um, that is a really great example, I think, of the kinds of commoning activities that are required to, to really make mobility more effective, more equitable, um, and also a better at enabling more freedom in general.
1: Chile is extending the state of emergency to cities in the north and south. Rioting continued in spite of a curfew imposed for a second consecutive night. Protesters clashing with police in many areas of the capital, Santiago. Eight people are known to have been killed since the unrest began on Friday, as Freya Cole reports. Soldiers on the streets of Santiago for the first time since the end of the military dictatorship. The curfew to end unrest has been extended for a second. So
0: in October of this past year, in 2019, uh, there was a 4% increase in the fare of a metro ride. And in response to this, which would have actually been unaffordable for many um, lower-income residents in the city who rely on public transit to get about their daily life, um, students, initially kind of students, uh, decided that they would protest this
1: rise in the
0: fare.
1: Protests began after a rise in ticket prices for the capital's metro, a decision which has been reversed. But anger has widened amid the huge inequality between the rich and poor. They've occupied stations.
0: They've um, had staged fare evasions where they just kind of jump turnstiles, um, hundreds, thousands of people at a time, so just refusing to pay fares. Um, And then... They've also had some more direct action kind of tactics. So they've, there, there were a few different stations that where trains were set on fire or where stations themselves were damaged. They were joined by other activists, both transit users and kind of labor groups. Um, and what initially started as kind of fair evasions um, and the occupation of of transit stations, then became linked to much broader struggles. So it wasn't just about unaffordability. Um, it was about class divisions that kind of create the, the urban poor in the first place who have to rely on transit and increasingly longer commutes to get to work. Um, so it was about inequality in the city. Um, And then it became about what has caused that inequality. (laughs) And it became about um, 20 or 30 years of policymaking, of programs, and of visions for society that actually set Chile down this path where people couldn't afford to get to work every day. And so it became about um, what protesters, what activists on the ground are calling, um, actually, the, the neoliberalization of uh, of the Chilean society and the neoliberalization of public services.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the Fair Free Toronto campaign and how they use a campaign um, that's based around accessibility to transit to make broader claims about about accessibility in cities.
0: Yeah, so that's another um, pretty interesting case that I've been looking at. And there are fare-free transit movements across the world, actually, and across North America. And uh, fare-free movements, in general, want to make transit free. So free to use, free to access, like schools or healthcare in some places. (laughs) Um, Of course, those aren't free everywhere either, um, but many places they are, so to think about the way that transit could also be free. Um, but the, the free transit movement in Toronto um, wants to do that. But that's not really the end of the movement. So they want to use a kind of free transit as a way to leverage for broader trans social and spatial transformations um, that would see more Democratic, more environmentally friendly, more sustainable forms of movement in the city, and so free in that sense doesn't just refer to kind of the, what you're paying to, to use the system, but it also refers to um, you know the the way that we set up society writ large. Right, so free, um, freer fares, freer transit, but also kind of a freer society that's. That's more sustainable. That allows people to participate more meaningfully, um, and so transit becomes a kind of vehicle in in a red green transition um, to a more. They don't use the word communal in that in that case, but they they do use the word a more socialist a kind of more social uh, way of living.
1: So we often think about transit as being public. Mm-hmm. So you said you know public transport is. They're almost synonymous, those ideas. Is transport really a public good? I think in a lot of ways um, there's been a disrepair, infrastructural
0: disrepair in public services across the board, um, in, especially in kind of advanced industrial places that used to have welfare state provisions that were more robust, robust than they are today. Um, we can think about infrastructural dis, uh, disrepair. We can think about austerity that have... Um, made the it kind of shifted the burden from the state to individuals and shifted the costs of services from the state to individuals. Um, and, and we're seeing that play out in a number of different ways. So in that sense, uh, public transit is a lot less public than it maybe it once was. Not as many people can access it or use it. Um, and it's not maintained in such a way as to be um, really a, a good that it once proclaimed itself to be. On the other hand, and this is where I think that language of the commons again is really important, a lot of activists will say, "Well, actually, the public good was never that good in the first place <laughs> um, because it always excluded certain people, um, maybe certain racialized populations, maybe people that lived in certain neighborhoods, um, people that were didn't couldn't afford to use the system anyways, um, or that it's always been." Um, as long as it's in the hands of the state, it can always be weaponized in these ways through everyday kind of security and surveillance or through
1: more spectacular forms of security and surveillance, like in Hong Kong. So how can we move from having public transport to having common transport? Yeah, again, a good question. And,
0: and I don't have all the answers to that question. Um, but I think we can learn a lot from what people are doing on the ground. And so looking at um, different cases of transit activism, they're certainly not all commons activists. Um, Some people who use transit in their protests and claims are um, kind of regressive, right? The the NIMBYs also do this. (laughs) Um, But I think if we look to what people are doing on the ground and what they are asking for on the ground, um, we can get glimpses of how we might be able to do that, how we might be able to move from the public institutions that we currently have to something that's a little more democratic. Again, like small steps, that's a little more democratic, that's a little more accessible, that's a little more equitable.
1: What have been their major wins from these different transport activism campaigns? Uh, in the, the case in Santiago that I have been looking at a little bit, um,
0: so the, the, the fare increase was revoked. And also, um, the, as I said, that, that in that case, these transit protests really sparked something much larger. So millions of people in the street um, contesting the government's um, policies as such. Uh, they've been able to call for a, co- a constitutional referendum. So a new constitution um, that overhauls the, the one that's been in place since the Pinochet dictatorship of the 1970s. Um, so really there, what began as these transit strikes have have caused kind of massive transformations in the the kind of vision um, for for the the state as such um,
1: and for the the constitution of society. The other night, your talk uh, provoked some heated reactions, but these guys were really objecting to the idea that transport could be free. Is there something, is it simply a lack of imagination that we can understand education and healthcare to be available for free, but not transport? Or is there something innate about transport that, that means it should, that the users should be paying for it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think people, there is a lack of imagination.
0: Um, we have this way of thinking about transit that's very entrenched um, in a lot of places. And that is that it makes the most sense for transit to be run by experts. Of course, in some cases, experts are necessary. Transit is a a huge resource-heavy engineering feat, right? I mean, so, um, but we have this idea that the only people who can have a say are experts um, and that we need to understand transit operations in a cost-benefit way. Um, We need to understand it in terms of, um, you know, regulating demand, and uh, we need to understand it in, in these very technical bureaucratic terms. And so I think when we... Try to understand mobility in a slightly different way, as being not just this really, uh, you know, technical thing that moves us from point A to point B, but actually a kind of broader component of our daily relations and um, of spatial relations, of social relations. Then those terms in which we understand transit no longer make sense, and so the the suggestion that transit should be free. Yeah, it may not make sense if we're looking at a cost-benefit analysis and if we're looking at, um, you know, the, the economic case for, for, for transportation. Um, so I think it requires a shift. Um, and that's also what these groups on the ground are, are trying to do, is to shift the way that we think about transit so that we can imagine it differently um, and so that we can build different kinds of worlds.
1: It's been a few months since we were in the studio with Teresa talking about public transport and commoning. And in that time, there have been some major global movements and processes that really have put public transport in the spotlight. Both in terms of how public transport is so essential to moving goods and services around cities, in terms of our vulnerability to other people on public transport, And also in terms of these really important racialized dynamics um, that Teresa talks about in her research, uh, particularly in New York City. We asked Teresa to open up her phone and record some reflections for us about what public transit in a time of COVID and Black Lives Matter uh, can really tell us about um, commoning and justice.
0: Most of the urban uprisings that are currently sweeping across the US and elsewhere are not about public transit per se. While issues of transit have emerged, so some transit unions, for example, have declined requests from police departments to carry protesters to jail, and some transit agencies are considering renaming stations as part of the attempt to remove racist monuments, but this really hasn't been the dominant focus or the terrain of struggle. And because of COVID-19, Demonstrations are largely being held outside, in streets, and protesters are frequently using other means of transportation to mobilize, so even just to get to and from sites of protest. Yet there is a deep affiliation between the most recent demonstrations and transit-focused anti-racist movements. Specifically, equity-seeking transit activists have long called for the end to harmful police-transit partnerships and even for police abolition outright. In many cases, this has directly involved Black Lives Matter actions. More broadly, mobility justice advocates have also historically worked to dismantle the deep structures of racism that are woven into the built environment, and they're embedded within conventional urban planning and development practices. So the transit movements that I study are really looking to overhaul uh, and to rethink ways to share space, resources, and access to decision-making through anti-racist and intersectional frameworks. In this sense, the waves of transit activism that we saw in 2019 and earlier are really part of the same history and spirit of solidarity as the protests of 2020 and twenty, and they're contributing to these exceptional and ongoing uprisings.
1: You've been listening to City Road on 2SCR, 107.3 FM in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers. And we've been listening into a conversation between Sophie Weber and Teresa Enright about transport activism. If you like this episode, you should check out the other episodes by Sophie Weber. They're great, you can find them all at cityroadpod.org. That's all for today. See you later.